Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha Kota Larson, and in this episode, we're going to stir things up and talk about how not to save the rhino. Most of you know I have been following the rhino crisis since 2007 and blogging about rhino horn trade since 2009 and that I wrote a book about it called Murder Myths and Medicine. I wondered when the mainstream media would take notice of the rhino situation. Well, finally, the mainstream media has started reporting on this important topic starting in maybe 2012 or so. Reporting on what's happening with rhinos in South Africa anyway more on Asian rhinos in an upcoming episode. Anyway, some of the plans to save the rhino are pretty bad and really just money-making schemes dressed up as conservation. Farming rhinos for their horns is at the top of that list for sure. And then we had someone in South Africa injecting poison into rhino horns claiming anyone who ingested the horn would become ill. Well, they ended up killing one of their own rhinos during a media demonstration very tragic and completely unnecessary. The whole poisoning thing turned out to be totally bogus. Look it up on the interwebs, you'll see. Moving on, today we are talking to Dr. Ronald Ornstein. He is a renowned CITES expert and conservationist and the author of several important wildlife conservation books, including Ivory, Horn, and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis. Ron is one of the most knowledgeable people out there when it comes to wildlife conservation, and he has the historical perspective so often missing in current information about the rhino horn trade, for example. So, I wanted to find out what Ron would have to say about a couple of so-called rhino-saving ideas. One of them, I think we've all heard before, is that old flood the market soundbite. The other is this recent scheme to produce and sell bioengineered rhino horns. This product is apparently grown in a lab and according to its proprietors, contains actual rhinoceros DNA. The mainstream media seems to really like this story, but Dr. Ron Ornstein does not. There are so many times when something about the rhino crisis is posted on social media and someone leaves a comment like flood the market with rhino horns or flood the market with fake rhino horns. Ron, why do you think those comments are so common? Well, I think in many cases it does strike people as a reasonable um, solution. I mean, the trouble is that people who make those sorts of comments don't really understand the way the wildlife trade works. This is a variant of the common argument that prohibition of alcohol did not work in the United States because it gave a monopoly to the criminals. And, uh, you know, if you just simply allowed everybody to go get the stuff legally, the illegal market dies away. And the, the problem with applying that argument to wildlife trade is that it ignores the issue of limited supply. On the one hand, that's one of the things. It, with alcohol, I mean, it wasn't like there was a limited, finite quantity of alcohol out there. There was never going to be any more. And once you put that out in the market, that was it. Um, or that it was only going to be regenerated at a very slow rate. 
I think if that had happened, it would be comparable to the situation you have with Rhinohorn. There'd be a, still a huge market open for bootleggers to say, I know it's so hard to get the real stuff. How about what I'm offering? But because you can manufacture it en masse and in um, practically unlimited quantities, you actually can flood the market with that. But you can't flood the market with rhinoceros horn because the market is too big, there aren't enough rhinos, and even if you accept that rhinoceros horn is a renewable resource and that the rhino can grow it back over a, a slow period of time, the chances that it can grow it back fast enough to supply the kind of supply you need for the market to flood it is very, very small. Now, even on a short term, uh, people who are saying, well, there's lots of rhino horns sitting in, in warehouses and stockpiles, we can toss that out there, and maybe for a short time that might have some effect, but over the long haul, it won't. The other thing that is wrong with the flooding the market argument is that it misunderstands what the market is. Again, if I can pull the alcohol argument out, alcohol was, we knew what people wanted alcohol for by and large. Um, with, with rhinoceros horn, we're dealing with several different potential markets, some of which we don't understand at all. Um, for instance, one of the common ways people show they don't understand what is going on is they say, instead of flooding the market with rhino horn, why don't we flood the market with Viagra? You know, and, and that is because they are assuming that the old chestnut that rhinoceros horn is used as an aphrodisiac is the truth when we know that except for a very recent uh, rise in that sort of demand in Vietnam, that's not true. Uh, that studies years and years ago showed that the idea that rhinoceros horn was a, an aphrodisiac was simply a Western myth. In fact, we think the uh, marketing of it as an aphrodisiac in Vietnam may be a consequence of that myth, a very recent thing. So Viagra won't do a thing for uh, the rhino horn market because that's not why people want rhino horn. Now, we do know something about the nature of the demand in Vietnam, which has been regarded as the biggest uh, market country, biggest end market country today. And it's for several different things. There are people who think it's a cancer cure. There are people who uh, mix it with alcoholic drinks, uh, either to avoid hangovers or probably for the same reason that people uh, would light their cigars with $100 bills, if you know what I mean. It's a way of showing how rich and powerful you are conspicuous consumption or to give away as bribes to uh, uh, government officials or gifts to employers. These are completely different markets. And then we have this other market that we don't really understand at all. In the midst of the wildlife trafficking crisis is yet another enemy, speculators who are banking on extinction. These ethically challenged collectors are accumulating as much as they can, rhino horns, elephant tusks, tiger parts, and more, in hopes that these species will become extinct. And these are people who are investing in the products of endangered species, which rhino horn would be right at the top, in the hope that once these animals actually become extinct, they will have cornered a large part of the supply and the um, price will go up astronomically. And we don't know how big that is. We don't know how widespread that is. We don't know how many people are engaged in it. But I've talked to a number of people who are 
quite certain that it really is happening, and there have been some recent reports suggesting that with more details provided. So flooding the market with rhino horn is not going to have any effect on, on people like that unless it succeeded in driving the price down so low and for such a long period of time that even the people who are stockpiling the stuff wouldn't have anything worth anything at the end of the day. And every expert I've ever come across says that that's just not possible. And of course, that gets us into the other issue, which is the idea of artificial rhinoceros horn, which um, theoretically could flood the market if they could really produce enough of it. But the problems that presents are enormous besides. Oh, absolutely. And let's talk about those fake rhino horns. Um, there is a company right now uh, here in the United States called Pembient, and they are, by all accounts, hoping to make huge sums of money from what they say is bioengineered rhino horn grown in a lab and derived from rhino DNA. And I know you're familiar with this issue, so let's talk a bit more about that. You could argue that in a way the market is already flooded because Carlman and others have shown that something like 90% of what is marketed as rhino horn in Vietnam particularly is fake. It's, it's buffalo horn or some other substance. So that, if you couldn't tell it from the real thing, could be, a, could be argued that that's already flooding the market and still is doing nothing or nothing we can measure to stop poaching or lower prices or reduce demand for the genuine article. So that's already the situation if you look out there. Now, the problem with what Pembient is doing, I mean, on the face of it, it sounds very attractive. We'll just replace all the rhino horn with fake rhino horn. It's going to be exactly the same as real rhino horn because it's going to be genetically identical and hey-ho problem solved. The, the problem is that anybody who's involved in this is simply terrified of this happening for a number of reasons. One of which is that there is no reason to assume that it will depress the market for the same reason that the fake stuff doesn't depress the market. There is a premium on the real thing. Those of us who are familiar with wildlife trade issues know that surveys of Chinese and Vietnamese consumers of wildlife parts have shown a strong preference for products sourced from wild animals, not farmed animals, not substitute parts. Consumers want what they consider to be the real thing from wild animals. Dr. Orenstein talks about this fact and how it relates to Pembient. Wildlife markets in Asia do distinguish between genuine wild caught specimens and any form, even captive produced materials, because they regard the wild caught original natural material as having some extra, I'm not sure what the proper word is here, some extra quality, either giving it a higher degree of use for whatever purpose they're putting it to, if it's a medicinal purpose, or giving it some extra status as this is the real thing. It's, I mean, you could argue it's a, 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 
A diamond is not a piece of cubic zirconium, no matter how attractive the cubic zirconium is. There's still some cachet if it's the real thing. And even a genetically identical fake is still a fake. A cultured pearl is a pearl. But that's marketed in a different way from the way natural pearls are marketed. So the, the idea that doing this is going to eliminate as opposed to simply add on to the rhino horn demand isn't borne out by any example that anyone can come up with. And there's a huge, huge additional problem. There is still no indication that Pembient has consulted with bona fide wildlife conservation experts. In addition to Animiticus, a growing list of prominent NGOs, including Education for Nature Vietnam, Wild Aid, Born Free, Environmental Investigation Agency, David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation, Outrage South African Citizens Against Poaching, Wildlife Risk, African Wildlife Foundation, Wildlife Protection Society of India, and International Fund for Animal Welfare oppose Pembient's plan. This is because the development and distribution of a synthetic alternative to real rhino horn runs the risk of exacerbating the rhino crisis. It would remove the stigma of rhino horn consumption and create unnecessary obstacles for law enforcement. Dr. Orenstein agrees, and here's why. Pembient has done this really on its own. They don't seem to have talked to anybody who understands the trade in rhinoceros horn or the trade in wildlife. They don't seem to care from what comments I've read that they've made. They, they simply are stating, oh, you're just naive, you don't understand business, whatever. The problem is that there is an existing enforcement global network that attempts to deal with rhino horn trade. There is the CITES Treaty, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. There are the actions of individual governments, both in range states like South Africa, along the market chain, in end market countries, that have, in every case, made rhinoceros horn trade illegal, and if you allowed Pembient to get its stuff onto the market, you presumably would still make real rhino horn contraband, it would be an illegal product, but that depends on, to some degree at least, on being able to identify the stuff. And if Pembient produces what they say they can produce, which is a rhinoceros horn that cannot be distinguished even by genetic testing from real rhinoceros horn and is not bound by any of these enforcement mechanisms because they all depend on this stuff being real and you can no longer tell the difference, your entire enforcement network globally is going to collapse or certainly be very, very greatly weakened. This is extraordinarily dangerous. They are prepared to sacrifice the global enforcement network that is trying to get the trade in rhino horn under control and is having some successes despite a lot of what you read, on the altar of their belief that their marketed product can solve the problem all by itself, something that they seem to have concluded without doing any research or discussion with the people who've been working on this issue for decades. This is irresponsible, it's frightening, and frankly, it's stupid. And what scares me even more is that Pembiant is not just talking about rhinoceros horn. 
They're talking about doing this with other products. They're talking about doing it with pangolin scales, for example. These guys are going to ruin wildlife enforcement worldwide if they pr pursue what they are doing. I would hope that these countries that currently ban rhinoceros horn will ban the import of the Pembian substitute as well. So what is the South African position on Pembient? Dr. Ornstein attended the CITES Animals Committee meeting earlier this year and talks about what one of the delegates had to say. Recently, I was at the meeting of the um, Animals Committee of CITES and had a chance to uh, discuss this with uh, a delegate from South Africa, from the South African government. And now South Africa is the country that, as you well know, has been considering whether to ask for legal trade in rhinohorn, they are not happy. You would think that if any country in the world would, would favor what Pembient is doing, it would be South Africa, which has a component within its population that has been pushing very, very hard, and it's got the government to investigate the idea of legalizing the sale of real rhinohorn. They are concerned, number one, that again, it's going to destroy any efforts to enforce anything, and two, they are concerned that there may be an issue of biopiracy here because in order to market their product, Pembian has to start off with real rhinoceros DNA somewhere down the chain. This is genetic theft, that they are taking something that belongs to some other country and using it as the basis to produce a product that they alone will profit on. They are going out on their own and stumbling into a situation they do not understand. As I mentioned earlier, the mainstream media has totally fallen for Pembian. But this reluctance of reporters to do any research on the potential effect of substitutes in the wildlife trade context is harmful. Dr. Orenstein explains. The interviews that I have seen are either done with reporters who, like any reporter, they're not, there are very few reporters out there in any field that are sufficiently expert in the fields that they tend to go out and interview people on uh, to be able to spot all these things. I mean, that's not a criticism. That's simply true. If you're a general newspaper record reporter, you just can't be an expert on everything. And as I say, presented up front, this sounds great. Hey, we're going to replace all the rhino horn in the market with this fake stuff and everybody will be happy and the rhinos will be safe. And they say, what a wonderful idea, aren't you a public spirited group? Uh, but they don't, as I say, they don't know what they're talking about. It is indeed troubling that supply-side solutions continue to rear their ugly heads in the wildlife crisis narrative. This sustainable use nonsense has even been suggested for pangolins. Dr. Orenstein explains why so-called free market capitalism is not going to save any wildlife. I have also seen interviews and columns that are written from a point of view of, shall we say, a, a free market ideological perspective, that this is private business, so it's good. And again, I'm not, I don't want to get into the argument about, about capitalism versus anything else. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying, again, these are people who are thinking purely as business and purely on perhaps general economic terms and they don't understand the wildlife trade, which is very different. Um, I mean, you're familiar yourself with the study by uh, 
two experts on the subject, Alejandro Nadal and Francisco Aguayo of uh, wildlife trade, which they looked at as economists and found that a lot of the people who are experts on economics don't understand the dynamics of the wildlife trade. It's a specialized sort of thing. And that these people don't get it. And because they don't get it, they don't know what to ask Pembient. Just to pull a statement from the Nadal Aguayo study from their uh, synopsis is, our study shows the literature advocating trade as a conservation solution for endangered species, now that's on a broad scale, relies on models that are based on simplistic or extremely restrictive assumptions, and they're relying on conceptual tools that have been thoroughly discredited. In other words, I mean, that's academic talk. A lot of the people who are looking for a business economic solution to these sorts of problems don't understand the business they're getting into. No, not not at all. You know, the people that are calling themselves wildlife economists, um, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, and, and also I find that some of these people, and I'm not attacking their bona fides at all here, I'm just saying this is a fact, often do these studies because they have been requested to do so by, say, the Chinese government. And so they can't say what a lot of us might say, which is, you know, you want to do business in China, let me tell you about what happens to outsiders that try to do business in China. Uh, forget about wildlife. You're dealing with a, a market that requires a real expert to go into without risking getting very badly burned because they don't play by the same rules as everybody else. No, they don't. And all the recent hubbub over at uh, Alibaba <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> should show that. People are talking about this as though they were operating within the standard free market environment that we have in the West. And in China, you're dealing with a controlled economy, however capitalist it may actually be. You're dealing with a, a government that control every aspect of things, and you're also dealing with a country that is frankly interested in what it can do for itself much more than it seems to be interested in what it can do for the rest of the world. And um, so the result is that from our perspective, <laughs> these guys aren't necessarily interested in playing fair. And the other point of it is that and perhaps maybe a, a more of a fair comment would be to say, even if they are interested in playing fair, they would much rather be the suppliers of their own products than purchasers of products from elsewhere, if they can do it. This is a problem for both the people in South Africa who want to have a legal rhino horn trade and for companies like Pembiant. I'm sure that if it becomes any kind of a big market, there'll be tremendous attempts within these countries to get on the bandwagon and produce the stuff themselves. And if it's once it all goes domestic, there's no control at all. One of the most horrifying stories to emerge from the rhino crisis is the use of rhino horn as a cancer treatment. This most certainly suggests that if you support trade in rhino horn, then you think it's okay to trick cancer patients and their families into using rhino horn so that a profit can be made. Here's what Dr. Ornstein has to say about the ethics of selling rhino horn to cancer patients. There's another side of this also that bothers me, particularly with rhinoceros horn, and it's got nothing to do with conservation or wildlife trade. 
We know that a great deal of the market for rhinoceros horn, not all of it, a lot of it is status, but a great deal of it is because people believe that rhino horn has certain properties that it simply does not have. And this extends to people who are literally dying of cancer. And do you really, Pembient and all the other people involved in this and the people who are selling or want to sell real rhino horn to, to Eastern Asia, do you really want to sell a fake remedy to dying cancer patients? Is that how you want to make your money? You know, I mean, if you talk about a moral aspect of this, there are a lot of people who say, oh, you people who object to all this, you're just animal protectionists. Well, no, because what you're talking about isn't killing any rhinos. You're not, you know, cutting the horns off a, a living rhino. If you do it properly, it probably doesn't bother the rhino more than trimming its toenails would. Producing an artificial substitute isn't killing any rhinos. So... Your, our objections are not based on the fact that they're killing rhinos. In fact, their claim is that there are going to be less rhinos killed because there'll be less poaching. We just don't think that's true. But surely there is the other moral issue of you are selling people snake oil. And remember at the, at, uh, in Bangkok at, at the uh, site event that South Africa did, we brought that point up uh, and uh, to the South African delegation uh, the minister said what someone chooses to do or not do with rhino horn is is out of our control and that was really disturbing remember the big thing about the there were these companies in the, was it the united states or mexico that were producing this product called laetril that was made from apricot pits and they were selling it as a cancer remedy and i mean that generated huge public outrage because it was fake. It didn't work. And you certainly didn't hear people saying, oh, well, let them sell Laetril to, you know, it's the buyers. If the buyer thinks it's going to help them, why not let them have it? I mean, the Laetril was shut down. The Laetril industry was shut down because it was, of course, going to people within North America, so perhaps they noticed more. But, you know, it, 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 I think it should really disturb anybody who cares about the way we treat sick people around the world. It should, it should bother people that people are getting in to make money on this. And the same goes for pangolin scales and the same goes for any of these other products that are thought to be valuable in the market because people believe they have medicinal properties they just don't have. If you don't have that same belief yourself, and I don't think that the people in Pembiot are coming out saying they think rhino horn cures cancer, if you don't have the same belief yourself, you're swindling people. I don't care what they call it. I don't care how careful they think the buyers should be. This is morally wrong. And it is morally wrong because of what it does to people, not because of what it does to animals. I agree. I mean, selling something to sick people and you know, having people perhaps even uh, forego medical treatment because they think that this other uh, product can help them, it's, uh, it's reprehensible. Demand reduction campaigns are moving forward in Vietnam and China. Local NGOs like Education for Nature Vietnam and Hong Kong for Elephants have made notable progress in raising public awareness and changing consumer behaviors. 
but Pembian's scheme to provide an identical substitute threatens to undermine the innovative work that is being done in Rhinohorn consumer countries. Demand reduction works. We know it works. It worked for ivory in the West back in the uh, 1990s, after the 1989 CITES ban. The ivory market in the West collapsed. And it collapsed not just because there was a ban on ivory, but because people were educated about it, understood why it was passed, and bought into it. And that market has not recovered, despite the fact that we now have a huge market for illegal ivory in China today that has come up in recent years. That worked, and it worked for many years. Um, the Yemen was a country that once took something like half of the rhino horns that were being poached in, in Africa. That was killed very largely by a few things, but one of the things it was killed by was a demand reduction campaign. You actually had religious leaders issuing a fatwa against the use of rhino horn for traditional dagger handles, which was what it was being used for in Yemen. And that had some effect. We know that today demand for shark fin soup, for example, has been significantly reduced in China. And there are other examples, I, I believe, as well. Demand reduction is being pursued at a very high and intense level by quite a few conservation groups in China, in Vietnam. They've involved uh, famous movie actors, famous uh, pop stars, singers, who are getting the message out to their own people because they can deliver a message that we cannot deliver, that this is the cost of buying this product and this is why you shouldn't buy it. And that is having is starting to have some measurable positive effect. If you have somebody come in here and say, oh, but you don't have to worry about that. Here's our product. You can buy that instead. And you can't tell that product from the real thing. You're, you're, you're not only ruining enforcement, you are saying it's okay. You're saying rhino horn is something you want to have. Just don't make sure that you're not buying this particular rhino horn from over here. Buy it from over here instead. And unless you can absolutely control and distinguish the legal from the illegal product, that won't work. Ivory is another good example. Legal, legally sold ivory, supposedly legally sold ivory, does seem to include some illegal component. Now, this is something that has been denied, but people who have gone there and done field studies have found not only that in some of these shops where they are supposed to be only selling legal ivory with government certificates, a lot of the material is no paperwork at all, and that in other cases, the paperwork doesn't match the object on sale. In other words, it's been reused. So that laundering opportunity is a gift to the smugglers because it's a way to get the people who don't want to buy illegal products to buy their stuff because they can fool them into thinking that it is legal. Now, one of the reasons they can is because it, you can't tell them apart because poached ivory and legal ivory are still ivory. You can't distinguish them from each other. They're, in some cases, you can tell by looking at the workmanship and the carving and all that, but by and large, 
even unless you are doing some very complicated DNA testing of the sort that Dr. Sam Wasser, for instance, is doing, where you can trace ivory back to the point of origin in Africa where it came from and find that if it came from an area where there had been some legal trade or whether all the trade was illegal. But even that is expensive and time-consuming and difficult and really is only used in really big forensic studies. You as a buyer can't do that. Now, along comes a company claiming to be able to produce rhino horn that is identical, even genetically, to the real thing. Then people who have real horn are, and who are forbidden by law from selling it, if, if they can't sell it under the table, could say, hey, you know, we go down to the local Pembian store and convince the buyer to stock our stuff too, which is what's happening with ivory already. And uh, problem solved as far as they're concerned. They've got their stuff on the market. So, again, as I say, um, these people are stepping into a quagmire and don't get it at all. And from everything I've read, they're not prepared to listen to anybody but themselves. And if they may say they think they're doing a, a, a morally valuable approach, publicly valuable thing that they're contributing to wildlife conservation. But if that's the case, why aren't they asking conservationists to tell them what they think? And if they're not prepared to talk to the people who understand what is going on on the ground with rhinoceros, on the ground with illegal wildlife trade, then I have to conclude that any claim they have to be doing this for public benefit is baloney. They are only after the money. I agree. I agree with that 100%. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of the laundering and, and all that, one of my favorite quotes from your book is, a clear-cut ban robs the illegal trade of one of its best advertisements. How do we ensure that the rhino horn trade ban remains in place? We're talking about the CITES international ban on commercial trade in rhinoceros products, which is part of an international treaty. We're also talking about domestic bans in most countries, both for export and import. I don't believe, and I stand to be corrected here, that there is any country in the world today that allows legal trade in rhinoceros horn domestically or internationally. If there is one, I, I'm not aware of it. So we have not just one ban, we have a whole set of them. Now, um, if these bans stick, then they will work. The problem is that not that you can't control the poachers, the problem is that the buyers don't really understand why the ban is there. They don't see it as something that they should buy into. A ban works if people accept there is a reason for the ban. A ban on alcohol, to go back to the prohibition case in the United States, didn't work because the vast majority of people thought the ban was foolish or weren't prepared to go along with it, didn't agree with the arguments behind it, and did everything they could to sneak their way around it. The ban on ivory in the West in 1989 did work because people did understand why it was there and they said, I don't want to be a part of this dirty business. It's, it's perhaps similar to the argument people make against blood diamonds, for example. Um, so 
the key is to make that band be part of an educational program directed to the people who are thinking about buying this stuff to convince them that the band is there not to make their lives tougher and miserable but because this is wrong and that they are being part of something they shouldn't want even to be a part of. Now that won't convince everybody. There are going to be people out there who say, I don't care, I want a big deal. And frankly, if they're, you know, seriously ill people who really believe that this product will save them or, or members of their family, I can't really blame them for thinking that way. That's a case of showing them that it won't. Um, but if you're dealing with people who are using this to, you know, grind up and put in an, in an alcoholic drink, well, some of them maybe you can get through. But the other thing is, is there are other ways to get at people like that, I believe. And this is why I think it's so important that we're seeing these campaigns in Vietnam uh, and in China that are being fronted by people like Yao Ming in China, by top uh, pop stars in Vietnam, people that are looked at as trendsetters and spokesmen for what is considered to be good and desirable in society, where maybe the message isn't to people who might listen to these people, don't buy rhino horn because it's wrong, it's don't buy rhino horn because it isn't cool. If you've been following the Animiticus blog, you know by now that South Africa is threatening to propose some sort of legal rhino horn trade scheme at the next CITES Conference of the Parties in September 2016. But this move could put South Africa at risk of potential international embarrassment, as Dr. Ornstein explains. You know that next October, we're going to have the next uh, meeting of the Conference of the Parties to CITES, and South Africa is still in the process of considering whether or not to ask for that permission to trade some horn legally. They've been pressured very, very strongly by a pro-trade lobby in South Africa. I take some comfort from the fact that they haven't made up their mind yet. Um, I mean, you know that this has been going on now since the, the last meeting in, in 2013. And the government came there very, very gung-ho. You and I were in the room with these people. They were all for it. So if what I, I wonder is the fact that they still have yet to make up their mind that they've been delaying publishing the report of the uh, government commission they've had working on this suggests that maybe they are hearing the message, that maybe they are realizing this is a bad idea. And the other thing they may be hearing is that even if they think it's the most wonderful idea in the world, it's highly unlikely to get the approval of other countries. And that they are going to be the host of the next meeting in South Africa. It's going to be in, uh, in Johannesburg. They are, they are going to risk having a very substantial amount of egg on their face in their own country if they continue to push this. Because I don't know of any other country that has supported them. And particularly, and this is particularly relevant when you look at what happened with Ivory, no country has come forward and offered to be a buyer. China hasn't. Vietnam hasn't. No country has stood up and said, if you get permission to sell this stuff legally, we will change our domestic law to allow it to come into our country. We will offer ourselves as a buyer for the scrutiny of the CITES Secretariat and the Standing Committee, which happened with Ivory. 
That was the only way they got ivory sales going. Legal ivory sales was when Japan and China came forward. Nobody's come forward this time. So I have some optimism that maybe, maybe this won't happen. Maybe we won't be arguing about this next October in South Africa. I sincerely hope not. Oh, I hope, I, I hope not too. And the bottom line is, you know, whether uh, legalizing the trade in um, harvested uh, rhino horn or selling a government stockpile or private stockpiles will not save any rhinos and it will make things worse for the rhinos in the other range states, especially the Asian rhinos, which most people aren't even thinking about. There is no doubt that South Africa's rhino ranching industry is a rich white man's club and that this is the special interest group lobbying the government to allow trade in rhino horn. So there has been an attempt to change this perception. But Dr. Ornstein explains that this short-sighted plan is likely to fail. One of the arguments that's been coming forward recently about the rhino horn trade, I mean, when this whole thing started, these were these private rhino owners, people like John Hume, who has how many hundreds of rhinos, uh, wealthy white uh, game farmers who have these rhinos and are saying the cost of keeping these rhinos and dehorning them and to keep the poachers away and having to on extra security is costing them so much that they can't uh, afford to keep all the rhinos they have and this is going to affect rhino conservation despite the fact that as I've always said that most of the rhinos in South Africa are not in private hands they're in the Kruger. That is something that I think the public needs to know and you know it's really hard to have sympathy for these wealthy white farmers. That is exactly why the argument is changing. What you are now getting, and we saw the start of it uh, when they, in 2013, is to suggest that this is a way for poor local communities to get to have some stake and value in wildlife conservation, which is otherwise seen as a privileged uh, preserve of rich white people. Uh, you know, the idea of, you know, and, and I can understand that argument. I mean, the idea that the poor people scrabbling a living in a village look at these private game parks charging huge amounts to uh, tourists and game hunters and things and, and say, well, this has nothing to do with me. Uh, you know, why should I uh, support the laws that make this possible? But the argument that the answer is to turn these people into rhinoceros farmers, which is what you're now hearing, that these local villages are going to become the owners of rhinoceros herds and they're going to be able to make money off the... Um, off the horn, I think is an extremely specious and even patronizing argument. I mean, for one thing, any of the private rhino horn farmers, the rhino farmers will tell you, I'm sure, that they have to spend a huge amount of money on security because poachers are going to come in. And these poachers are, are not, uh, you know, mild-mannered people. <laughs> They'll come in heavily armed. So you have a small village somewhere in the edge of the Kruger that has its own little rhino herd and a, a bunch of militarily equipped poachers from Mozambique come in with, uh, with automatic weapons and, and try to take these people's rhinos away. Is that the situation you want to put these people in? One of the pro-trade and pembient sound bites is, everything has been tried, nothing is working. Unfortunately, mainstream media loves sound bites and has generally failed to do its homework here. Sadly, it's all about generating clicks and likes and retweets rather than actually taking time to research the rhino horn trafficking issue and get to the truth. The trouble is that I come down to this. It's the same stories we talked about with Pembian. The people out there in the media don't get it. 
they hear the Pollyanna stories, the this is going to be wonderful stories, the we're the people who understand all this and all these other people are a bunch of, uh, of emotional uh, you know, bunny huggers, as we used to be called in Zimbabwe and places like that. And so they, these people, the press, are not going to the people who really understand what's happening. First of all, it's not true that nothing else has worked because if you look in the past, some of these things have worked very well. Uh, in Nepal, in, in, uh, where strong anti-enforcement effort by the government and the army worked very, very well indeed. Um, that these things do work, that demand reduction campaigns do work, but also the idea that merely because something hasn't been tried yet, it's therefore better. <laughs> you know, it could be better, but there's a good chance that it's suicidal. The point is, people who don't know what they're talking about have a better chance of being wrong than people who do. This is much, much more complex and difficult than the free market solution people would have you believe. It certainly is. And on that note, thank you so much, Ron, for taking time to speak with me today. As always, a very enlightening conversation and many lessons to be learned. You've been listening to the Behind the Schemes podcast, episode 38, with wildlife conservation expert, Dr. Ronald Ornstein, author of Ivory Horn and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis. We've been talking about why supply-side free market ideas to save the rhino would actually do more harm than good. In other words, we've been talking about how not to save the rhino. However, if you want to learn how to save the rhino and the elephant and the other species under threat from wildlife trafficking, you need to read Ron's book, Ivory Horn and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis. There is a link conveniently located on our website so that you can purchase Ron's book. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you learned some new things and enjoyed our podcast. This is Risha Kota Larson with Behind the Schemes.